Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bear's Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. And you can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not Cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. In an essay called Tradition and Individual Talent, the poet T.S. Eliot wrote, what happens when a new work of art is created is something that happens simultaneously to all the works of art that preceded it. Shinua Achebe's 1958 novel, Things Fall Apart, achieves this. It reorders the entire canon and allows us to think about what the English language is capable of, what the novel can do, and how to account for the individual imagination as the most powerful force in changing the world. Join me in the conversation with Professor Mantia Diawara, himself a renowned filmmaker and writer, to discuss the lasting impact of Chinua Achebe's masterpiece, which was published 60 years ago this year. Welcome to uh, Think About It. I'm thrilled to be here today with Professor Mantia Diawara, who is a filmmaker, a writer, a critic, also holds the title of university professor at New York University. Uh, Mantia, we've known each other for a long time. I think of you always as a French Parisian, cosmopolitan, New Yorker, also from Mali. So you grew up in Bamako and then you were educated in Europe and studied at Indiana University, taught at the University of California at Santa Barbara, the University of Pennsylvania. And now you've been my colleague here. So welcome, first of all, to the podcast. Thank you for, ha- for being here today. Thank you for having me, Uli. I'm happy to be doing this program. So what I wanted to talk about is Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart. Achebe, Nigerian novelist, published his novel in 1958. Things Fall Apart is considered today one of the most important novels written in the canon of world literature. It's also been talked about a lot as the first African novel written in English. It's not quite the first, but maybe the most important one. When Achebe was in 
university, which was called University College in Nigeria. He studied medicine originally, and then his teachers, he published a few short stories, his teachers probably indulged him a bit, but relatively quickly discouraged him and didn't take it seriously, the idea that an African could write stories or a novel that would be taken seriously. Ajayi talked about this throughout his life, that initially he was told, kind of, it's a nice hobby, but don't even try. And there's more behind that kind of discouragement and Ajayi's decision to nonetheless write this book. So can you say a little bit about how, you, I mean, you probably have been teaching this book for a long time. What is the importance of things fall apart for anyone today, not just for people from Nigeria or from the Igbo region of Nigeria or British people or but what is the why is this novel become such a touchstone for how we understand what the novel can do? Well Things Fall Apart by Chino Achebe, you're right. People refer to this novel as the first African novel. The dates do not matter that much because they are prior novels in Africa. But People consider it as the first African novel because it has a way to Africanize the English language and the novel tradition. It's the first African novel because Achebe was able, in this particular book, his first book, to question the novel after reading books like uh, Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, to try to look at Africa from inside, to give Africans a subjectivity, to, in a way, show an African worldview, which includes religion, which is very important. They say Africans do not have a religion individualism, which is also very important because people think that African are just communities, but also reversing the eye to have Africans looking at Europeans. Because in many ways, we've read novels where even the best novels, well-intentioned modernists, were still looking at Africans. This is the first novel that's actually looking at Europeans in Africa. So it's a very important novel in that sense. Why am I making a big deal about the language? This is the first novel that you can go to. That's not meta language, that's primary language, but yet that gives you a sense of African orality. For example, there is a moment where the main character, Konko, comes home and he finds out that somebody had cut the banana tree. He's really upset. He said, who killed the banana tree? Now, in the Western sense, we don't say killing the banana tree, even though today with environmentalism we may say that. But he said, who killed the banana tree? Because trees had spirit the same way human beings have spirit. So you refer to a tree as a character, as important as human characters. So there are many instances of that in the novel. It's really in terms of style, in terms of content, in terms of showing the world that Africans have a culture, a civilization equal to the culture and civilization of anyone else. It is probably still one of the best African novels. All the African novels have to measure themselves still to things fall apart. That's a 
grand statement 60 years after its publication, and it puts a very high bar for what the novel is. To go back to this first point, you said it tells the story about Africa from within the African perspective. Can you say something about this? What's the role of the novel in general? It tells us not about other people living somewhere. It's not actually a travel guide to discover other people, but novels have a way to put you into a world and it's a worldview. So how does that actually work? When people read this book, they think, oh, am I now sort of visiting this Nigerian village and looking at these people? It's not quite like that. The no, no, it, it, it's it. not like that. You're right. The purpose, I mean, the ways in which the novel distinguished itself from the epic, for example, or from uh, the romance, is this astuce, this ruse of going in the mind of the characters. You know, going in their mind in order to judge time, in order to judge space, in order to show kind of subjectivities that affect individuals as characters in the novel. So the novel is unique in that sense. It's wonderful. When you come to things fall apart, what's great is that this novel opens right away with the main character, Okonko, who is embarrassed to be the son of his father, Unoka, because Unoka had no titles. And in this culture, the Igbo culture that the novel is talking about, a man is judged by the number of titles he has earned. And Okonko's father has no title, so he was really, his whole life, he's afraid of failing like his father. When you're saying Okonko lives with this weight on his shoulder that his father didn't achieve what he thought he should have achieved. There's a couple things to this. There's history, clearly. So he's a historical subject, like everybody else in the world. Like from Greek antiquity, we have Oedipus who's suffering. From, there's fate. And then there's kind of living your own life apart from this legacy, from where you come from. He wants to dif differentiate himself, distinguish himself, to live his own life and not be totally overdetermined by where he comes from. So what you said earlier about subjectivity, it's about one person's way of making sense of himself in relation to all these things, some which are present around him, some which are long gone from the past, and some which will be in the future. Yes, I mean, Chinua Achebe is a master storyteller, first of all, because he began this story by throwing, you know, flashbacks we know that Okonko's father's ghost is going to come back to hunt him. By showing the number of titles Okonko has achieved as one of the best men in the town. So you worry about his fate. If he's so worried about his father, how is he going to go from the beginning of this novel to the end of this novel? So he gives you a lot of clues at the very opening of the novel. We know that Okonko is a strong man. A strong man with an absolutist idea of masculinity, of identity, and achieving the title of elder in this village. So he really, his fate is already sealed. This is what Okonko is going to do. He doesn't like failure. He's masculinist, so he's not going to compromise. And he has a strong sense of identity in an area that we all know that white people will be coming soon. How will this person survive in an environment like that? Yeah. 
And that struggle seems to be, or that kind of ambition to define yourself on your own terms and to achieve something. Would you say that's something universal? We all feel this way. We all want to prove ourselves. So you're saying the storytelling part that Achebe starts us out to start identifying with somebody who may be very strange to some people. Say, you're the strong man in a village. I can't relate to this. I live in the modern world. We don't have this anymore. But this is a very universal effort to be yourself, prove yourself. Yes. It's very universal, but it's also very important because the idea is that Africans do not have a civilization that Africans cannot create universalism. So what do you get in this novel is that as you identify with Okonko's point of view as a man troubled with a problem that affected manhood with the Greek, manhood with the Romans, manhood with the Egyptian, all the way to Europe, then you are actually learning a universalism from a particular the particularity of this small town with a man who's afraid of failure. But he doesn't do it superficially. He puts it in the Igbo cultural context mm -hmm. by bringing religion and tradition. Why does this man want to have titles? Because to become an elder, you need to earn a lot of titles. So he fights. He farms and gets more yam than anybody else. He fights and kills more people than anybody else. He beats up his wives. So it's squarely anchored in the Igbo tradition of manhood. It's also religious because Igbos, unlike the neighbors in this area, whether the Yoribas or the Hausas or the small ethnic minorities, Igbos in the Igbo land, The Igbos, unlike all these groups, believe that a man determines his own destiny. And the God follows a man. If a man says yes, his Nchi says also yes. Nchi, in this case, is the God. If he says yes, your God will say yes. So if you're lazy, simply don't blame your God. It's your problem. So he's coming, his masculinity is coming from that tradition. Uh, really. So it's cultural and it's traditional, but it's universal. Because you will see that in Europe, in France or Germany or Portugal, people ultimately shape the manhood like that. In the United States, manhood is also shaped by the way your tradition tells you this is ma manly, this is not manly. You know, so so you can't escape this fate. It's really interesting when you're saying this she, this God sort of affirms what you do. If you make don't take a wrong step, the God will affirm that as well. So you're kind of in sync with it in a certain way. When I read the book, thinking about it now, I don't quite know how to describe Okongo as a, he's a hero, he's heroic, he's also, as you said, in some ways deeply flawed. Like all human beings, he makes grave mistakes. We know this from you know, the tradition before the novel, the Greek tradition is all about the heroes who commit grave errors. They're actually right, never right. perfect and just are godlike. So he makes these mistakes and then the culture around him, they are rules and norms. They have very strict rules. They have a tribunal. Feels like the Supreme Court of this village is as magisterial, probably more intact than our Supreme Court. But then there are also norms how to behave. So what we're learning is like every culture has its assumptions about what's proper behavior, what's improper. 
And so you follow him along in this way, and the novel tries to show us that the world is actually the construction of meaning that we put into it. You don't you don't get born into a world, and this is self-evident, right. but you are participating right. in shaping it every right. day. Yeah. Well, in the situation, I think you're absolutely right. You know, he's, in some sense, a tragic hero. I mean, the way Achebe described Okonko physically first, he can only remind me of Achilles. The way, you know, his face looks, he's turning, describe his nose, breathing air, his eyes are very, very, you know, tightly shaped. So, when you're reading it, you don't want to have lunch with this man. You are afraid of Okonko. You're intimidated, yes. That's, you in, so the, that's the way Achebe describes him. He's a man, I think you're right, he has tragic flaws. But at the same time, he's a man who is being visited upon by a major change that's going to sweep all of Africa. You know, colonialism. White people are coming from the first time. So when you are a strong man, you are an elder, you have more titles, how do you behave? That's one of the questions in this novel. And Okonko does not have the benefit of reflecting, of thinking a lot. He is a man of action. So his friend next to him, his best friend, Obierica, reminds him of that all the time. You know, for example, Obierica said, you should never have taken part in the killing of Ekemefuna because that boy was like your son. And Ekemefuna is this boy who was handed over to the village in a legal ruling as a kind of way to create a kind of compromise between two conflicting villages. Okonko raised him, but then it was decided, legally decided, that he has to be put to death. Yes. So he's advised not to do this, but he kind of probably maybe trying to prove how strong he is or that he can determine his own actions, he participates in this killing. Absolutely. It's a devastating scene in a way because you're kind of at this point identifying also with this teenage boy whose foster father is guiding him into the forest and he does he has a sense of what's going to happen. But it's a really devastating scene because he's kind of killing part of himself to prove how strong he is. Well, you know, first they gave Ikemefuna to Okonko because he's the strongest man in the village. And when he came to Okonko's house... He began to call Okonko father, and Okonko wishes he had a son like Ikemefuna because his own son, Nyoi, is effeminate. His own son, Nyoi, is listening to Christian music coming. His own son is really remind him of his father, whereas Ikemefuna was working in the field everywhere, every day with Okonko. So Okonko began to admire Ikemefuna. So when the, the tribunal put down the judgment that Ikemefuna had to be sacrificed, and you know, you got human sacrifice with the Greeks, you have human sacrifice in all the great works that we know. Okonko, the best thing he could have done is, look, I, I don't want to go against the judgment of the gods, but I, I don't want to take part in to this killing. But Okonko does not want to be perceived as feminine. He doesn't not want to be perceived as weak. So he not only marched with all the other people 
in the middle of the night with this young boy in front of them. But he has a machete and he's the one who's going to cut this young man. And the young man, you could hear him in the dark saying, Father, they are killing me. So it's really a tragic moment that also is looking at the Africans' role in the encounter with the outsiders. Well, listening to you about this scene now makes yeah. me think he's participating in killing the part that is the one he would be most proud of, the strongest part, that would actually overcome this legacy of his father's presumed weakness. But where the novel takes us, as you said, this encounter with the colonizers, with the white men coming in, the British in this case, there's an end to this. So Okonko will not stay as strong because right. his entire culture is engulfed in another struggle that is not an individual struggle anymore, right. but it's a right. struggle between two types of civilization or culture or dominance. So this sm smallish scene, which is so devastating on a human level, foreshadows that he's, he's actually killing the strong part of himself. He did, in many ways. After he killed this young boy, Ikeme Funa, he alienated everybody, including his best friend. And his son began to look for models in evil forests, which is the land that the people in the village, Umuafia, the village is called Umuafia. When white people, the missionaries arrived, they want a place to settle. The villagers looked at each other and said, let's give them evil forest. And evil forest is where all the bad things are buried, the ancestors. The wrong the, side of the tracks. <laughs> the wrong side of the track, the snakes and everything. So if these people think they're so good, let's give them evil forest. Now, Nyoi Okonko's son began to hear the chants, the humans of the Christians in the forest. He began to identify with this. And later on, you know, in the novel that he will eventually join them and leave the village. Now, Okonko had so much respect in this village, but he destroyed. Let me give you an example of the respect that he had. When he became an elder, and this is for me probably one of the best moments in African literature, aesthetically speaking, but also in terms of everybody talks about African art, the masks, the ancestor worship, and so on, and how you get the vital spirit from the ancestors. Well, you put on a mask and you dance and through the rhythm, the spectators and everything, the ancestors' spirit flow into your body and you get the vital force and you are blessed. And that's how they also make judgments. In order to make the judgment, everybody put on a mask. So when you do this masquerade, you're no longer yourself. You're no longer yourself. You are an ancestor figure. And you are dancing. And what is brilliant about this novel is that Okonko, as an elder, was one of the people who wore the mask. His wives knew that he was limping. Other people knew this, but nobody dared acknowledge that he was Okonko because he was at that moment an ancestor figure. He had become one with the ancestors. And really, that's what African art, that's the definition of African art traditional art that influenced the Picassos, the Epsteins, the Bracks, all the, you know, all the European modernists, the Fovis, the Cubists, and so on. So Achebe has succeeded in putting all that 
in a mise-en-scene. You know, the role of the mask, the role of the ancestor, and the elder putting on the mask in order to pass a judgment, including the killing of uh, Ikeme Funa, of course, including the time, you know, some people kill somebody from Umoafia and they have to declare war. So all, everything comes from this Supreme Court that you call, you know, the mask dance, you know. I think of the Supreme Court partly because it's on everybody's mind and partly because that court in our country sits in judgment invoking the text of the founding fathers which was written over 200 years ago by a few men and they actually dress up in robes it's a very ritualized performance to actually embody the intention or spirit even if you're not an originalist of course it's like the things fall apart so we all do this so in some ways you're saying this is what achebe puts in front of us is a to be in touch or be possessed by the spirits of your ancestors gives you a kind of power to be in the present. So Okonko is in... And to be neutral. Interesting. And to be neutral. Because even though he's limping, people can no longer recognize him because he has become an ancestor. So it's not Okonko speaking who is embedded in his village, has relations, but it's neutral. He can abstract himself. He can actually speak on behalf of some other principle. Exactly. He had become an ancestor figure. He's no longer Okonko. You know, so it's it's very much it's kind of how Achebe is actually novel. He doesn't yeah. speak as Achebe anymore and about Igbo culture right. specifically, but you're saying through this specificity we can see something that actually transcends that or leaves that in a way. Yeah. And this brings us back to your point, the question that you raised earlier of white people coming, colonizers coming to this area. Which Achebe in many ways he has at least two points to make in the encounter between the people of this village, Umuafia, and the European colonizers, including anthropologists, including the missionaries, and the commissioner from UK. The bureaucracy and the military. <laughs> yes. So when this encounter happens, Achebe, for me, is saying two things. You come to us you think we have no civilization. We think we have no identity. Here we are. We are a country that has Okonko. And next to Okonko, you also have Obierika. So, two very complex characters. One is very much open, negotiate, understand situation, identify with uh, people. And, you know, he's complex. That's Obierika. The other one is upholding the masculine identity of the tradition. So they all fit in this tradition the same way you will have your Achilles or your, I don't, I don't know, Aeneas. Or you have or, your, your yeah. Hamlet and you have your, exactly. your Othello. Exactly. <laughs> so he's making that point. And then he also had this powerful, ironic moment toward the end of the novel where the district commissioner said, oh, these people are interesting because Achebe had hung himself. He said, these people are interesting. Maybe I'll write one paragraph. This is, the, this is the paragraph right here, right? So he says, so the district commissioner decides, he says, every day brought him some new material. He thought about the book he would write. The story of this man who had killed a messenger and hanged himself would make an interesting reading. One could almost write a whole chapter on him. Perhaps not a whole chapter, but a reasonable paragraph at any rate. There was so much else to include and one must be firm in cutting out details. He had already chosen the title of the book, After Much Thought. 
the pacification of the primitive tribes of the lower Niger. So this is the end of Achebe's novel, where for a moment he says, if a white man had written this book, it would be a sentence, but I just gave you the complexity of an entire civilization, of how the world is actually constructed through our participation in it, resistance to right, it, right. failures, successes. And if I hadn't written this novel that you've now been absorbed in, you would have known a sentence. That's right. So the last sentence, it's a kind of interesting change that Achebe almost gives over the voice at the last paragraph to this white person and says, actually, nothing would have been achieved. We wouldn't know the humanity of anybody. Well, you know, it's an amazing moment in, in the novel because on the one hand, he changed the, the narrative, the narratological mode of the novel. It suddenly become an irony. You know, ironically, look at how these people, they think my culture only deserves one paragraph. So, right. you know, you have an authorial intervention in some ways. And do we accept it or not accept it? So there was that challenge. When I read that intervention, I love the fact that he's telling the reader that Igbos in Umuafia had a very complex culture. And he's right to elaborate on that. But as a reader of the novel, because that's what I do, European, then I say, why is he speaking? Why am I hearing this voice? But that's just my own perversion of derisory <laughs> approaches to things. But it was a, an incredible moment because Achebe, it, Things Fall Apart, is telling us that Okonko was thinking in his own world. And the in is important. Whereas Obierica is acting in his own world, but thinking with the world. Seeing changes coming from my world, how do I deal with these different changes? I'll win some, i lose some, and so on. But Okonko is the one who is not compromising. And ironically, for the Igbos who do not believe in suicide, that's the worst abomination in Igbo culture. They don't do suicide. So Okonko become this person, sacrilegious, this person who actually, in his attempt to defend the tradition, is breaking all the rules because he's not having it his own way. And he's not different from the colonizer. Because the colonizer also, when they come, they, when white people come to these places, whether Africa, Latin America, wherever they go, the objective is to discover the world. Now, you can't discover these people. They have been there. The objective is you conquer them. And then the objective is to civilize them, to give them a religion. And we have already seen in Things Fall Apart that these people have an intricate, a very complex religion that is able to take care of, you know, justice, that's able to take care of the everyday life, that's telling you when it is a holiday, when it, you know, it's a work day. So they all, their whole lives had been organized in a very sophisticated manner. But this is what Europeans just come, they don't see it because they are like Okonko. They don't think with the world. They just come with their culture and impose their culture. If Okonko had power, he probably would have been a colonizer too. And I like what you said, that this is irony, deep irony in the sense. So when yeah. people say this is the first 
not literally the first, chronologically, the mm-hmm. first African novel written by an African in English, they don't say, oh, finally, the English language also got an African to contribute to the great canon. This, actually, what Achebe is doing with this deep irony, he's saying, we've been here all along. You yeah. pretend we didn't exist. I didn't need to add anything to your canon. I'm writing something, and T.S. Eliot once said something, every work of art changes the entire preceding canon in fundamental ways. It reorganizes everything. So Things Fall Apart reorganizes the understanding of the novel, not it's another novel we add to all the great novels. But now we have to think differently about what the novel can do and is. Well, you know, again, we are in the English language. If we stay in the English language, I think, you know, you originally... Germanophone and I'm Francophone and so if you compare French, German to the English language, what happened first is that the English language was able to produce the American literature that's completely different from the English novel, the Australian literature, the Canadian literature, and Achebe opened the door for the African literature in the English language. That's not English. And this is so important because all the writers, whether they like Achebe or didn't like Achebe, had to measure their writing. They have to take Africa seriously and African cultures and traditions seriously in writing their novels. So that the whole, what they call Hahnemann series, Hahnemann was the publisher of African writers, they, all the authors actually created a literature in English, that's different from the American literature, that's different from the British literature, the so-called Commonwealth literature, that's authentically African. You pick up the first two pages, you know that this is a novel culture. You're entering in a novel world. Achebe started that with things fall apart. He started that with things fall apart. But he also followed the, he honored the novel as that which, open the door to different complexities of the world. So you get to see Africa finally through his eyes and then through the eyes of all the subsequent writers who came all the way to Chimamanda or Beno Creole. So moreover, wonderful Ngugi Wationgo who wrote great English novels that he, you know, differences, and this is why I mentioned French and German earlier. When you pick up a French African novel, Things are changing, but not, but not much. The language still is Guy de Maupassant. You know, the language is, because you have to do the, your passé simple. You have to really speak the way people speak French in the tradition of Francité, which is the hexagon. You have to speak French like French people. The hexagon meaning the country of right, France, right, centered right. in Paris, exactly. in the Académie Française. So the, this is proper and the rest is not valid. The best writers, you know, even Samben Ousmane earlier, he picked up a novel like Le Docker Noir, all the way to Au Pays Mombo Peuple. It's really the French grammar and the French way of you know, syntax, especially the French syntax. You have to say this word, this this phrase, the way French people so speak. So what is saying also that a language can be changed exactly. from within and from yeah. without. Yeah. And yeah. that language is malleable and the novel is malleable. Absolutely. So it opens that up. Yeah, Mark Twain understood it. 
Achebe for Americans and Achebe understood it for Africans. This is what is crucial and it still is the struggle in Francophone literature because we are still trying to speak French like French people. They never allowed us to have a Senegalese French. So my question for you, Mathieu, so you've yeah. written a novel. Have you written it in French or in English? I had to write it in English. You wrote it in English. I have so the freedom said, to, yes, the freedom to it's, invent. And it's set in uh, yeah. Senegal party. Exactly. I read it. It's wonderful. So yeah. hopefully it's coming out soon. <laughs> so I want to thank you. We could go on. I hope to have you back on the podcast right. in the future yeah. for about another book. So yeah. thank you, Professor Mantia Diawara. I want to point out one thing. You have a film out called The Opera of the World, which yeah. was shown at Documenta in Athens in Kassel. It's been touring, it's been screened, so if people are interested, I think they should watch this incredibly moving and powerful film. One of your recent films, you've made many others, you've written books, and I'll put the information how to get more access to your work on the website as well. Thank you, Lee, my Thank friend. You. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye.